Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship, located in Southeast Ontario. Unitarian Universalism is a progressive free faith grounded in the promises of community and inspired by how we hold our shared faith's principles and sources. For more information about Canadian Unitarianism, please go to our website, kuf.ca, and our national website, cuc.ca. Good morning and welcome to the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship. My name is Alexander Kolpa and I will be your service weaver this morning. Our settled minister, Reverend Beckett Coppola, is away this weekend and she will return next week. If you are new here this morning, welcome. We're glad you found us and we encourage you to identify yourself to me or any other member of the congregation after the service. The flow of this morning's service will be different from anything we have done before. Our guest speaker, Erin Horvath, is the social justice lead for the CUC, and she brings to us an account of how experiences in her own life are intertwined with an emerging awareness of colonization, decolonization, reconciliation, and what she calls conciliation with indigenous peoples. In order to allow time for her presentation and the content, the challenge for us is also to ask ourselves as a congregation, what can we let go of? So I invite you to approach this time together in a spirit of worshipful listening. Let us truly hear what our guest has to say. After the service, there will be time for a talking circle facilitated by Aaron and me, where those who would like can share their reflections on the message. So after the service, please get your coffee or tea and then rejoin us in this space. This is also the first Sunday where the children will go off downstairs to religious exploration and we'll sing them out to celebrate this moment. As our opening, I would like to invite Aaron Horvath to come up and light our chalice. We light this chalice today as a guide to our learning, both for the young ones who will go to RE shortly, as well as for us. Now, in terms of our UU theological reflection, Let's take a close look at the third principle. It says, we, the member congregations of the Canadian Unitarian Council Covenant to affirm and promote acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. This is directly relevant to the journey Aaron Horvath is about to take us on. And I was particularly struck by how three quotes she gave me in advance, and which you will hear as part of her narrative, all contain that element of growth and change. The first one is taken from The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And it goes as follows. If you looked in the mirror and did not like what you saw, you would have to be mad to attack the image in the mirror. If you accept the image, no matter what it is, if you become friendly toward it, it cannot become friendly toward you. This is how you change the world. The second thought is from Francis Wesley, a scholar of social innovation at the University of Waterloo. And the quote is as follows. We 
don't stand outside the complex systems we are trying to change. When it changes, we do. When we change, it does. The third thought comes from Erin herself. Colonization shatters everyone. Reconciliation is what happens within each of us so that we can be pieced back together. So those are three thoughts that we should carry with us as we service progresses. So good morning. It, it is so nice to be here. I have uh, been traveling quite a bit this week, and uh, if you can believe it, I've been on little, little planes in little bush communities, a little place called Wapakika and Laxo First Nation, and that was my beginning of the week, and then just keep jumping on little planes, and then had the wonderful pleasure of driving here, which was a really nice drive after a, a long week of being on bush planes, which uh, are like flying cars if you've never been in one. They're, they're very tiny, so <laughs> it's really great to, to be here. And thank you for the invitation. That was, um, that was lovely. I would love to be able to share with you a little bit about um, my life and my journey. Um, my experience with Indigenous peoples has taught me that it's best whenever possible to anchor things in our own story, so then that way we're not declaring our truth as somebody else's truth, or that you should think this way or that. So I'm inviting you this morning to just explore with me the musings of a privileged white girl. And uh, my experience is over 23 or more years trying to unravel my place within a, a system that, um, if you read my intro, I've been born into. So I have sisters that are Indigenous, right? So trying to understand who am I and how do I, how should I be engaging in this world has been sort of a, an ongoing thing. And in particular, um, the word reconciliation. I'm not sure how it is in this neck of the woods, but um, where I spend time, everything, people are all talking about reconciliation. And I was really surprised that in my local newspaper in Huntsville, which there is, I'm sure, not a whiter place in all of <laughs> Ontario than Huntsville, right? But there, there was a a letter to the editor, and what he'd said was, um, how will we know when reconciliation is achieved? Is it when the last indigenous person has nothing left to complain about? <laughs> yeah, but, but here's the thing, is that I didn't get that the tone of the person was like, eh. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like they're trying to be snotty about it. I think they were genuinely asking, how will we know? Like, like what are we... What are we doing? Just based on the, the tone of the rest of the letter, right? And so then I've been thinking about that, and you know, how might I respond if I was to write back um, or speak to this person, right? I mean, the regardless of whether his intentions were were snarky or not, there's still that implied, you know, how when will we be off the hook? You know, there's this really horrible thing that someone did at some other time, right? And now we're stuck paying for it. And when are we going to be done with that? Like, when is it going to be good? When will it be right? And my, my own experiences over, you know, this 20-something years has definitely led me to the opinion that it's not so simple. It's not like bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And all of a sudden we are, we're cured. We're healed. You know, like, just get them their drinking water already and then they're fine. Right? It's not, I'm realizing, quite so simple. Um, what I, I wonder is if this person who wrote this had any idea about what we might need to be doing, right? Like, is it just a, like when the drinking water is figured out, or when the, there's no more children in in foster care? Like, at what point do we know that you know we're done, we're good, right? So this is the thing that is kind of kind of consumed my thinking in recent years, um, as well as over my lifetime, is that what do we need to be discussing as conscientious people about what we need to be doing in us? Not just what needs to be done, you know, can we write another letter and get another something done? Like, that's an outward thing, 
and the trend in my life lately has been on what do I do inward, right? Because as the Eckhart Tolle quote suggested, right, that if we want to change the world, it does nothing to have a big freak out about the reflection that we see when we look out into the world around us, but we gotta start to figure out, well then what in us? And I take the assumption, I don't know about you guys, but I, I make the assumption that I've never quite got it figured out. And so because of that, then I'm always asking, well what could I do differently? Should I do something differently? What would that look like? So humor me today, if you would, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my story. And maybe we can explore this idea that reconciliation isn't just about this external thing, right? That it's not about something between us and someone else. Because if you think about it, even the word reconciliation is a bit bull. Like, to be reconciled means that you were once friends, right? And then something went wrong, and now you're going to make that up again and be reconciled. But we have never been friends with indigenous nations. We meaning the collective us as settlers, right? Um, I'm speaking from a settler point of view. I have indigenous family members, but I'm not speaking um, from their point of view. I'm speaking from my point of view, which is as a settler person, the governments that I feel connected to have not been amicable. I can tell you in walking and living alongside indigenous peoples in various projects, it continues to be that way where it's, it's not a friendship-based approach. So this idea that we need to be reconciled I think is part of our collective delusion. That we still want to somehow be good guys. <laughs> but if we're being truthful about things, I don't know if we have much to stand on in terms of, of that belief. So I'm kind of challenging that um, when I'm speaking it today. So a little background here. I'm going to see, can I walk away from the mic and you still hear me? Yes. Oh good. Well that's great. Okay. <laughs> So my journey in trying to understand uh, some of these bigger issues uh, began when I was around 19, 20 years old. And I was working for an organization that was doing basketball and performing arts camps all over Ontario in different um, indigenous communities. And I was asked with this small group of people to go to a little community called Cat Lake First Nation. And I was like, sure, like let's go. So I show up there, brought in by the OPP. The OPP literally had kept the plane running, like they brought us in on their plane, dropped us down, drove us in a bullet-riddled um, police cruiser, dropped us off, took off, and like saw their plane in the air within 10 minutes. And I was like, hmm, something sketchy here. <laughs> you know, I hadn't been on the planet very long at that point, but I knew there's something wrong when the police are taking off. So there I am, I start to go looking for a basketball net. Nobody plays basketball there, like at all. Like I had to describe what it was. So I'm like, this is even more suspicious. And nobody did performing arts at all. It's like, um, was unheard of, right? And the people tend to be often kind of characterized as, as quieter people. So the idea of being like dramatic was like, what? <laughs> Why would we do that? That's a crazy idea. So I, I soon got the idea that this was not their invitation. I wasn't there because they wanted me there. I was there for some other reason. So it turned out that we were a peace offering by the OPP. They had shot one of their youth. Um, I know, great, huh? So the thing was is that people were really upset and they had the right to be the way that the situation went down there was there was lots of reasons to be upset so what ended up happening is that I realized that one is that the adults are not speaking to me they're not even looking at me it wasn't their idea at all to be here what am I gonna do so many of the people I was with said well let's just read books and sleep for 10 days and they'll come back and get us eventually and I was like and we haven't known each other long, but if you can tell by my personality, I'm more like, let's do life, let's figure what out, whatever this is out. So I went and um, just started to talk with some people and two uh, girls about four years younger than me, they uh, decided, bless their hearts, changed my life, but to take the time to walk with me around their community. And they were the chief's daughters. 
And so one of them had shaved her head completely. Uh, and so I asked, you know, why is your head shaved? And she explained that they had had a string of youth suicides. And that, um, you know, and I asked, well, where are the kids my age? Are they at college, university, what are they doing? And she's like, I'll, I'll show you the graveyard. Here's where they are. And so her head was shaved as a sign of grief, like um, to restart, right? So that it had significance to her. So she started to explain then, like when I ask, like why do the adults not look at me? And they're like, because you guys like took us kids. You took their kids, like they're kind of annoyed. And I've got to imagine like a, a 19, 20 year old, I think I was 20, I just had turned 20. I don't even know what we're talking about. Like, who took your kids? Like, this is awful. Did they give them back? Like, just as stupid as you could imagine anyone being in that moment, that was me. And trying to understand then what. So they said, well, you know, it was the churches and the government. They took the kids. They took me, right? And these are kids that are, like, younger than me at that time. And I'm like, they took you where? To school. And I wasn't allowed to be with my family. And... It was pretty awful and some crazy stuff happened and it's this, you know, like, so this is, I'm getting this lesson as I'm walking around this community with these girls. They're telling me about that. And then they're like, yeah, it's like you've always been trying to somehow wreck this situation for us. You know, if it wasn't that, then it was like you took our kids and then they're in foster care. And some of our people never come home, right? And it's like, holy jeez, right? Is this for real? So this was my, my 10 days, was just having this living history come to life in this most horrific and upsetting way. But to be honest, I was still like, this can't be true. Like, there's got to be, there's got to be a mistake here, because this is just messing with me. <laughs> really messing with me, right? Yeah, and so... I remember one time at, during that visit, I walked back um, to the phone, because back then it was pay phones, right? And I called my mom and I said, Mom, why do these people here look like Diane and Linda, my sisters? And my mom says, oh, because they're native. Right? Just kind of casually. And I'm like, native. So then you can imagine, right? Like thinking it through and I realize, oh my gosh, I have two sisters because they're were the ones, like some of the ones that were taken from their homes. So there's somebody, somebody, and, and no one knows where they are. Right? And these sisters, by the way, were adopted before I was ever born, so they're older than me. So they're familyless because my family thought we were being super generous and awesome, my mom and dad, and they, my parents were amazing people, right? And there was an agenda and my family became a place for them to go, serving an agenda that was much bigger than my parents just thinking they would provide a home for a child who didn't have one. Okay, right? This is, these are big revelations for anyone, but for a 20-year-old. My only saving grace is that 20, you haven't yet fully sunk your teeth into whatever reality adults have presented to you. You're kind of still like, man, I don't know if I, I buy this anyway. So that was really helpful. Um, but I did have this kind of a woo-woo moment during that visit where I was sitting there and I was praying. And the every cell in my being, it was like every cell lit up. And I felt like I heard I don't know if it would be a voice or a presence, but say, would you give your life to this? And being the 20-year-old energetic one that I was, I'd be like, yeah, let's do this, right? Like, no idea. I was just like, yeah, let's, let's do this. And it turned out, you know, that I, in hindsight, can see that um, if, if any of you guys know The Matrix, that film, it's like my favorite, there's a character, Neo, who's presented two options, the red pill and, and the blue pill. And I believe it's the blue pill, you get to stay in your, your delusional oblivion, and the red pill is now you get to see how stuff actually is. So it's just my personality to be like, give me the red pill, let's do this and see what happens. So I kind of started on that journey, went back to uh, where I was from, which was the Kitchener-Waterloo area where my mom lived. And I remember talking to the people at my church and saying, did you know that the churches have abducted these children and this crazy stuff happened to the government? And they were just like, what are you talking about? 
Nobody abducted anybody. And in fact, one person said, you gotta be careful that you don't get like a shaman. They even use the word shaman, witch doctor or something, doesn't cast a spell on you or something. I was like, okay, I never met any of them. I don't know who those guys are, but you know, this is what I've heard, right? So I started, since I couldn't get answers there, then in university, that's, you know, my time of life, I started to take courses that were um, led by Indigenous people, with Indigenous people, trying to get my head around what's going on. And at that time, um, I saw the documentary about the Oka crisis. So again, another thing that blows my mind. Like, so they don't want you to put a golf course on your, on their burial grounds, so you declare war on them? Like, I was just... I was losing it. I couldn't fathom that this was as absurd as it was. Yeah, like as a fairly recent newcomer to planet Earth, this was ridiculous to me. Especially that the people who had claimed themselves to be good were absolutely oblivious in my life, right? Yeah, so then what ended up happening is I went back the next summer to Cat Lake with their permission and did some stuff with the, the youth. And that summer, um, it went from being ignored to being starting this relationship. And the thing that happened was um, another young person took her life down at the water by the house that we were living at. And uh, it was very traumatic for a lot of people because we were doing youth work and a whole bunch of kids, like 30, 40 kids were all swimming down by the lake. And we're having a perfectly great day and then turned to do some berry picking and saw this young lady there in the tree. And it was really difficult, um, especially for some of the people that I was with, because they'd never even witnessed anyone who had died, never mind had taken their life. And um, in this particular case, what makes it so upsetting is that um, the way she took her life, and this is sort of graphic, I'm, telling you ahead of time, and I'm still going to tell you because it is their reality and it's worth us knowing, but they take their life often, but they could get up at any time. They could stand up, but they choose not to. And something about that just like was so, I, like tingles telling you that. It's just unfathomable to me that somebody would feel that way. And so the thing that happened that was really changing is that we were supposed to leave because uh, it was the end of the summer, it was the very end of August, and we were supposed to go back to school. Um, but we changed our flights so we could be at this funeral because it was such a big deal, right? All these children, and oh my gosh, like it was just such a thing. So um, one of my friends that was with me, uh, she was 19 at the time, and, and she was really not doing well with this. Like her whole worldview literally shattered in that moment. And um, the way that they, they bury, each other in that neck of the woods is they dig the grave by hand, they lower the casket in by ropes, and then we all take turns covering with the shovels. And so my friend Rebecca, she wanted to help shovel, but she was bawling so hard, like just bawling, and she, she couldn't do it, and her hands were shaking, and it was just, it was one of the most saddest things I've ever seen. And um, what ended up happening is two women, Daisy, and Elsie came over, Sophie and Elsie, sorry, came over beside and helped her to dig. And even like years later, like this is very, there was a moment that I will not ever forget that the grace that's extended, you know, this is, they've been through so many deaths of their young people. And here, this non-indigenous young person's life is getting shattered because of the difficulty of their situation and they come beside and help to dig, right? So that's when things started to change. And it's been now 23 years in relationship with that community where um, we've worked on many projects together, we've cried together, I mean, not everybody's my best friend, and <laughs> I'm not theirs, but there's a, an understanding there that's grown over time where there's been a lot of really rough conversations. Um, I've been reamed out more times than I can tell you <laughs> for, you know, just not getting it or whatever it is, right? But there's been that reciprocity. <coughs> but from there, you know, before that, I had to 
to figure out what am I going to do with this? Because I didn't get to just jump forward to this nice 23 years that followed. I had to figure out what am I going to do about this situation. And so, um, I, I, again, I kept trying to piece together and keep my worldview intact, right? I was, I was born into a Catholic and Protestant family, so I was trying to keep that worldview intact. You know, the idea that the good people who tell me they're good are good, and it was just a really rough time. And it kind of culminated to a bit of a breakdown. And I was in grad school, and it was, I had decided that the creator had made a mistake, and that I was born into the wrong culture I felt like the only thing that would make it worse is if I was born a man. I figured then I could be like completely outright hated, right? Um, so at one point I, I was on the floor in my apartment, my arms were out, such a small place I could practically like touch both walls. I, and I'm just bawling, right? Just, this is terrible. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do because I couldn't figure out how I should be given this reality. Um, yeah, I wanted to smash. I probably was smashing the metaphorical mirror, right? Like I just was enraged with it. Two things, well actually three things helped me get up off that floor. So um, one was, has anybody read the book um, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn? Okay, like for real, saved my life here. So I, had, I was seeing myself as completely doomed because of my ethnicity. And in that book, a gorilla is speaking to a human to try to, to help them see the things differently. And the gorilla had drawn a timeline, I guess for you guys it'd be here, right? Like coming from the past and it just said leavers. And the leavers are the people who know how to behave on the land. They don't take more than they need. They don't see themselves as greater than or less than, so they're okay to have relationships with um, you know, animals and uh, connections with the cosmos and their ceremonies reflect that and there's no kind of keeping anybody um, in a position of being a slave because you have all have access to whatever you want. Just go hunt it and gather it and get it and you're good, right? So that was the leavers and then this tiny little branch was coming off and that was the takers. And the takers are the people who see advantage in keeping lands and resources under lock and key that see themselves as superior, therefore create religions and things so that they always are somehow in the, the, the top of the pyramid and, and relationship with those other things doesn't matter and what have you, right? So that was like profound, but the most profound thing that changed me is that there was the takers, but then there continued to be the leavers. So there's still always leavers, for a long time leavers, 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 just this little branch of takers. And I looked at that, and it was like that little taker branch, I saw my connection to the leavers. And I was like, yes! Like within me, within all of us, we come from a long history of leavers. Like that's in our DNA. And I was like, so there, I, I'm saved. <laughs> there's, there's hope for me that I'm not inherently evil or doomed or awful, that I do come from that history of people that do know how to behave. Okay. So that was, you know, get myself up off the floor. And I go and find my, my advisor, Lara Fitzner, who's an indigenous woman from Manitoba. And I had the privilege of studying with her for quite a long time. And so she, in our conversations, is the one that said, you know, colonization, it it's, hurts all of us. We all have to heal, right? Because it's one thing to do something harmful you know, have something harmful done to you, but then to have the mentality that then you put that onto someone else and you don't even get as a collective that you're causing this pain, like that needs healing more than anything. Like that needs to seriously heal, otherwise it keeps doing that, right? And, and mother culture is whispering in your ear from the day you're born, telling you whatever it is about how you need to be. And if that thing causes destruction to someone else, then that's a really painful place to be in. So she, you know, as an indigenous woman, would be like, don't just look at me like I'm the one that needs healing. You need to do your own work to get yourself together, right? And then I'd be like, I know, and she goes, the best part, right? She's, she was so kind, though. I just use these words, but she basically was like, all right, you know, you're not, you're not weak. You're resilient. Like, get off the ground. 
use your big mouth for something good, right? Like, she basically, she put up with my, my whiny pants privileged white girl breakdown, right? About how unfortunate hard it is for me to deal with this reality, you know, that she and others are living day after day, right? Like, how difficult. So she said, you know, you can walk into any church and because of the color of your skin, you can speak to them. Creator saw that you would be raised in every kind of denomination. And seriously, my family went like through every denomination. I can speak Christianese, like fluently. Doesn't matter what congregation you put me in. Yeah, and so like she says, you can do that. But she says herself, my brown skin, I I don't have that same reception. Those are your people, and they just happen to be some of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. Creator doesn't make mistakes own your position in this world, <laughs> you know, get on with it. And the other thing she would said is that, you know, the idea of being an ally, we don't need allies. We need people who will take on their own establishment and make change. We got us covered, right? This is her speaking. We don't need that rah, rah, while your government and your people and your ways continue to cause torment. I was like, all right, that's not a wake-up call, right? This is, this is something. And so I've been trying then, you know, from that point on, to build relationships, to, to call out the establishment, to do whatever it is that I can to try to make change. Now, back to this kind of present day, stuff still isn't quite changed. You know, I've been at this for what feels like a long time. You know, I'm, I'm still a young person, but, you know, 20-something years, it's like, why can't we seem to just fix it? Like, what is wrong with us? This is where I'm, where I'm at sometimes in my thinking, right? And so I've been coming back to this idea of, well, what is it then in me that I can change or I can address in order to become more reconciled with my lever history? Because I really truly believe, even as a change agent, I believe that I can't change anyone but me. That's like not even allowed. So it's just me. That's the only thing I got to work with is me. How can I change myself? Okay. So this is where I've been kind of doing a little self-exploration. First thing, I realize, back to my blue pill, red pill challenge, it's become clear and clear to me that I have no idea what I've been asked to do. Like I thought at first that it was like, will I work on indigenous issues? Or will I work with this one community? Or will I, <laughs> I don't know. But now I'm, I'm realizing that it's really an inside job that I need to be focusing on. And so I'm really trying to, to call myself to task as much as possible um, on that, right? And some of the things that I'll tell you, and, and again, this is just your getting a glimpse into my mind right now. So whatever, right? I may change my mind later. Hopefully I do as I grow. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, this idea of the belief, you know, that I'm a good guy. Like I'm one of the good guys. You know, when I'm with my indigenous friends and they say, you know, we, we hate white people, but we, we kind of like you, right? And I think, yeah, because I'm not as bad as those other white people over there. Right? That kind of thing. I'm like challenging myself and thinking, you know what, I'm not one of the good guys. I'm a part of a bad system and sometimes that makes me one of the bad guys. And I, I can tell you that I don't quite love that reality. <laughs> um, more recently, you know, like um, we're talking about in that, in that quote there, the, uh, we're all beings of the system. We can't stand outside the system that we're trying to change. You know, we're interconnected by relationships. Okay, so I was like, telling myself this. And then this past, maybe June, my older sister, Linda, uh, gets in touch with me that her family has um, reached out to her on Facebook, her indigenous family. And would I want to hear anything about it? So I'm like, absolutely. You know, I want to be here for you. And just that experience of hearing the pain which is horrible. I won't even just know it's horrible on every level what happened to her and her, her siblings. And me wanting to make it better and me wanting to make it go away and me wanting to be supportive enough that I can somehow differentiate myself from that horrible system and realizing that I have to just hear it 
Like hear it and accept that pain that was caused. You know, realize that that's a real thing for her. And she sometimes gets so mad at me, she yells like that I'm, and she does group me in with all white people, white establishment, you know, like and actually being able to hear that and to not to take it on as in like I'm a bad human, but just like, no, this is the reality, is that the privilege that I have has been on the backs of someone else. And in one case, it's, you know, my sister's. My other sister, Diane, died tragically at a young age from drug and alcohol. So it's now just Linda and being connected. And I bawl. You know, she sends me these photos and she tells me, you know, what she tells me. And it's just like, it's horrific. And I'm realizing that I don't get to just have this past that I'm a good guy because I do social activism and whatever I do, right? Yep. No, that's not the way it gets to be. Um, the other thing I've been challenging is this idea that I've, I've earned what I have because of hard work. Yeah. So I look at my sisters that are indigenous. So there's two of us that are non-indigenous, two that are indigenous. And it couldn't be clearer how ethnicity, you know, sets people up for, for different experiences in life. And so I'm realizing that, yeah, I've worked really hard, but my skin color's given me privileges. Right? And I have had a lot of challenges, like tons of challenges. If different day, different talk, I'll tell you about them. But lots and lots of challenges, and my skin color is not one of them. And that's been a really hard thing to just kind of really come to terms with, that that is the way it is. <laughs> a more recent one is the idea, you know, that I'm entitled to be here in Canada or this land we now call Canada. And um, yeah, I've been thinking like for real thinking, should I be paying, you know, I, I have a, a business that's on a land, should I be paying taxes to the indigenous people whose land it's on? Should I be asking, like, should I have asked before I moved to the area? Like I've just been really trying to ask myself, well, what would it look like if I wasn't assuming I got to be here? Um, I don't know if your congregation gives land acknowledgements, but just the idea of land acknowledgements lately have been on my mind. So, like, imagine it like this. Alexander, can I use you as, a, as an example? Okay. So, here's how it sounds to me when we are entitled, or we think we're entitled. So, I, I, I'm in Alexander's car driving, and I say, I just want to acknowledge that I'm in Alexander's car. And we just want to thank Alexander for looking after his car for so long so that we could be in this, this car. And um, yeah, it's really good news though is we have room for you, Alexander, in this car. Um, you know, you could be in the back seat or you could also be in the trunk. You could probably spread out nicely in the trunk. You might like that. I don't know. But we have room for you, you know? And then we might also even say, we don't just have room for Alexander and his family and his peoples and his nations, but we can invite everybody. Come on into Alexander's car that I'd like to acknowledge that I'm in. Right? But at no point do I go, okay, and get out. Like, I acknowledge that I'm in the place that you didn't invite me to be in. You didn't ask me to take the steering wheel. <laughs> Some of my friends, like indigenous friends that know me well, like, they'll be harsh. They'll be like, if you acknowledge it, then get the hell out. You know where you came from. Like, go away. Those are kinder words that I've heard. Right? Like, this is, this is a reality, is that for people like us, right? That we might even say stuff like this, where we'd be like, well, where we came from, there wasn't any cars at all. Which is, again, to me, it's like part of that story where we're not actually questioning our sense of entitlement. Or we say, well, we're all here now. So, I guess we're here, like, without actually getting to the spirit of what we're trying to say, which is we're not entitled, we're here because somebody has taken this space and called it theirs. And this one's really hard for me, so I, I can't give you a nice big bow around this one, it's just that's what I'm thinking about these days, is how do we actually deal with that? Because um, to me, I have, I have two boys and I always tell them, um, you know, when they're playing sports, that how you treat different people really matters. So, so you score. Do you do like some big victory dance in the end zone and be like, eh, whatever, do you do that? 
no, 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 mom, that may be rude. But then if I think about my feelings about when we sing O Canada, some of my friends have, indigenous friends have really strong feelings about that because it's like we made a song and it's about us taking over this place and we never ever thought about how does it feel to have a song sung about your quote-unquote takeover, however it is, right? So I have a hard time with that because sometimes I'm involved in politics and in a public eye and how do I feel about standing when O Canada is played knowing that so many of my Indigenous friends feel like that's like a victory dance in the end zone. Right? So just, these are things that I've been playing with as I've been trying to understand. Um, a couple other things. One is that I'm a, a compassionate person, right, who's an ally with Indigenous peoples and all that stuff. I've been trying to think about it because my, my Indigenous friends, again, they always tell me, we don't need you to be an ally, a cheerer. They, they appreciate that I do walk with them and we do a lot of things together, but you really need to work on your own people. Therein lies the problem, right? The settlers, settlers of any culture, right? Whether you came long ago or, or more recently, right? That, that we have the, a mentality that's going to take a long time to chip away at. So I'm like, huh, I really liked, you know, when I was like the helper person in my own mind. I felt like, you know, that gave me props for something and it feels less exciting to take on the establishment. But super necessary, uber frustrating. <laughs> um, and then the last one that I've been thinking about. So this idea that reconciliation will happen then when we change the situation of indigenous peoples for the better. I think that it will happen when we kind of hold in check that taker mindset to figure out in how many ways it's been like a stowaway in, in our consciousness. <laughs> that that kind of a thing, you know, that deep understanding uh, and challenging of who we are, right? Until that changes, our values will always be in conflict with Indigenous traditional values. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if, if they're using lever values, and uh, by the way, not all Indigenous people follow lever values, because anybody can succumb to the taker you know, mindset. But if, if that's the case, right? Lever values, taker values, and we say, but well, we're going to somehow keep our taker values, but we're just going to apologize for every time we mess up. Like it's always going to be in conflict. So for me, that's what kind of has started this idea of what in what ways can I change? And how would that change the collective if I was to be able to challenge this stuff in myself? So like a simple thing that I'm doing these days is if I give a land acknowledgement somewhere, I actually call the First Nation whose traditional territories it's on, or nations, or organizations if you're in an urban situation, right? Like I actually call them and I say, hey, so here's who I am, here's what the event is, you know, like just really trying to put it into practice in every way of my, every day of my life and trying to call myself on any time when my taker mindset goes a little bit rogue. <laughs> And it's hard because I sometimes I miss it, right? I don't always see it. What from here? It's highly inconvenient. It hurts. It's not bibbity bobbity boo, right? You know, truth, healing, reconciliation, right? There's this feeling bit in there. Truth, healing, feeling, and reconciliation. And that feeling, if we take it on, can be really, really painful. There can be that tendency to want to be, um, you know, consumed by the grief and the guilt and the shame and all that stuff, um, as, as I told you in my story. But, you know, trying to actually work forward and say, how can I give up some of my unearned privilege? What can I do to share power? That's been, you know, sort of my challenge. So... When I gave this talk, you know, one time um, not that long ago, somebody asked me, so what do you do going forward? So I'll just share with you four thoughts that I have. One is accept how things are. Right? So challenging ourselves on the word reconciliation. If we've never had friendship, then be like, okay, I'm getting that. All right. And then that focus then on changing ourselves. That that 
you know, this little light of mine, that's our little light. And that light really matters what we do with it. The other one is the building relationships that um, so oftentimes uh, because of the work that I do, people will kind of share with me their opinions. And recently a guy came up to me and said, I think I figured out the housing situation for indigenous peoples. Okay, right? And, and I asked like, do you know indigenous people? Well, kind of, I have this business relationship and I think I figured it out. And I think, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> right, without relationship, how can any of us really understand each other's lived reality, right? So we need to ask, how do you see things? How do you see this? So when I do my work uh, in community development, like I ask that question countless times. How do you see this? Because everybody's perspective is going to be different. And if we can begin to see each other's situation through relationship, that's often more compelling than just seeing it through like political activism, whatever, right? It hurts a heck of a lot more, but the significance there, um, it changes us, right? I think that's how it's supposed to work, our relationships on, on this earth. So that's another one. And then the, the other thing is, is that um, there's this really brilliant author uh, called Sean Wilson, and he's an indigenous author, and he speaks about how for all of us, the knowledge, the understanding, the ceremony, it all still exists. And we can draw from it. From, for those of us who um, are, you know, more, our, our lever history is far off. We don't know it. We don't remember it. We may not have, you know, a, a tradition to return to. But his point is that it's still there. And so we can access it by, by engaging in some of those deep, more meaningful spiritual ways, which could be unique for each of us. It's not like there's just one way. But the point is, is that we can learn how to be in relationship in a more spiritual way, not just in like a social way. And that that knowledge about, and, and I, if I had more time, I would explain to you some of my experiences with ceremony, but you know, that it does have a way of switching worldviews. And then the last thing, um, this kind of piece of information has been part of my, my life since I was about 18 and one of my mentors uh, explained this to me, but um, the idea is that you act in the opposite. So you can't always be there for every social justice cause and you know everything, right? Um, but when we encounter something, just simply act in the opposite. So if somebody is without, you know, with distrust, and suspicion, then be more open and vulnerable, right? They just be the exact opposite of whatever comes to you in life. So in this particular case, you know, if we're talking about indigenous peoples, I try to challenge. I think through the word reconciliation. Does that even make any sense? If it doesn't make sense, then I'd be like, okay, so I'm gonna act in the opposite. I'm gonna talk then about what it could look like or what it might look like for me. And then say, hey, well, what does that look like for you? So we're just trying to claim just our own little bit of action, not necessarily that, that we can do everything at all times. Does that make sense? I know I'm speaking to a bunch of activists, that's why I'm trying to talk about, you know, then be like, let's start a letter writing campaign. No, like what if we just take it back down to us and go, okay, what does it look like then to build relationships? knowing that probably like I've experienced, you're gonna be reamed out more times than not because you're not gonna get it. Okay, you know, going into that relationship, if you accept that, then it can be such a beautiful learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. As far as I understand, right, this is how we start to reconcile ourselves to that lever nature so that we can become that more collective whole expression of justice in regards to, you know, this really challenging situation that we find ourselves in together. I'll end it there, but I'll just mention to you in case that you, um, you have the opportunity, there's a really beautiful poem called Reconciliation, and it was written by Rebecca Tababandan, who's from Wasoxing First Nation, and she was also one of my classmates at University of Toronto. And uh, 
one of the lyric, or the, I think of it as a song, but it's actually a poem, but it talks about how you'll cry and you'll cry and you'll cry because you'll see yourself in this big mess, right? And we'll cry with you because you'll see in yourself the pain you've caused. But we'll call back that circle, right? We'll, we'll call, come together to cry and we'll, we'll call back that circle and it will be old and it will be new. And it speaks about this idea of it's not just one or the other, but it's that coming together and that crying together and figuring out a path together. So, if you have a chance to take a look at that, I highly recommend it. I'm going to pause there. After the service, I would love to hear your thoughts and just anything that this has brought up for you um, with the understanding that there's no necessarily right or wrong. What I've said to you could be completely ludicrous. Maybe it, you think hear it and you're just like, that's ridiculous. That's okay, right? It's part of that learning that we just have these exchanges. So if you would like to join us for that, I would be more than thrilled to hear your, your points of view. Let's take the time at the end of our service to form some kind of a web. Clasp hands, touch elbows, whatever is your comfort level as we close this service together. Aaron's phrase, colonization shatters everyone. Reconciliation is what happens within each of us so that we can be pieced back together. That line made me think of another closely related thought from the American poet Adrienne Rich. The quote goes as follows. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world." End of quote. May we all remain committed to these faithful acts of reconstituting the world, and in so doing, may we find ourselves reconstituted as well. May it be so. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday service podcast from the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship. Please feel free to check back each month for additional episodes, and if you're able to contribute financially to this community-supported enterprise, we would deeply appreciate your generosity in any amount.